0: Okay, let's look at KLDAP. That's up first. KLDAP is the, as you could probably guess, it's the header files and the library files, probably, that are required or that help developers access LDAP information through the KDE framework. If you don't know what LDAP is, that doesn't mean anything to you. So, LDAP is the lightweight directory... A- something protocol. I don't actually remember what what what's it stand for. LDAP. uh LDAP. RFC forty five ten says that it is the Lightweight Directory Access Protocol. I knew that. uh Lightweight Directory Access Protocol, and that is de- defined in the R- in RFC forty five ten. So ietf.org slash RFC slash RFC forty five ten dot html takes you right there. You can read up all about LDAP. Um, It's quite the read, though, so have fun with that. Um, A little bit more realistically, let me just describe what a directory is. That seems simple enough, right? Well, kind of. So directories, we often, you know, if you're into Linux, I guess, you you may find yourself conflating the concept of a directory and a, a folder, and that's a reasonable thing to To do because a lot of times on linux people call folders a directory i don't know why i don't remember when my head crossed over between folder and directory and started making those the same things i i'm pretty sure at one point in my life i just thought of them as folders i don't i don't think i would have been sort of brought up thinking of them as a directory maybe i did i don't know but the the weird thing is you'd think that if i didn't know the term directory for folders I would remember the moment when I realized, Oh, a folder and a directory are the same thing in this context. Well, in LDAP, they are not really the same thing, except they are insofar as folders on computers don't exist, right? That's a really important concept to to internalize. And it's difficult because we, it just makes sense. It makes a lot of sense to think of these directories, these folders, as, as little containers where you put your files, but that's just not how, that's not how computers organize data, at least not, not today, not yet, not, not in reality. That just doesn't, that doesn't make sense for the way computers allocate memory and storage space. And so what ends up happening is that files get allocated to a specific spot on a hard drive, and then you sort of, like, you tag them as, oh yeah, by the way, wink-wink, nudge-nudge, you're in this folder. So, in that sense, if if a folder, if we think of a folder as a list of things that are in it, then that that is a directory, because a directory, as I've been trying to get to for way too long now, is essentially an index, or you might even think of it as a, as a kind of a a low, a low write like you do not write to it often, and a, a an often read, a rarely written to but often read index or database because it contains a bunch of information that contains a bunch of information. Um, and so that's that's what a directory is. So if you think of like a phone directory, you might have one in your town, you might in your city, you might have a phone directory, you might not. They do tend to exist still. Um, at least in like the form of Yellow Pages, if nothing else, which is a directory of phone numbers to places that exist in your town. So that's a, a directory. So, Lightweight Directory Access Protocol is a a streamlined, a an, an efficient, a lightweight specification for how y- you might access common information over a network. And LDAP uses just this good old standard tcp ip protocol so it's it doesn't need a whole bunch of layers underneath it it, it is um it, it's highly it, you know, it's designed to be highly efficient such that when you are for instance typing in a email address at your workplace one of the ideally the first place that your email client searches for an auto completion is ldap that way you have access, instant access near instant access to all of the contact information registered in the directory of your workplace. And that directory, again, that's LDAP. Configuring LDAP is is not for the faint-hearted. I mean, it is it's a big job. There's a lot of infrastructure around it. So I don't know if I would personally consider the sort of the experience of LDAP, of configuring LDAP and making it function is necessarily lightweight. Personally, there's a lot of setup there. But once you get it configured and running on your network, your clients ideally have access to it over that network and more importantly, your client computers, your the users of your client computers, they don't have to think about whether they're um you know that they don't have to think, "Oh, I'm going to go and look something up in the directory that just appears in their in their software in their applications, and that's what k that's the the slot that kldap fills, because with kldap, when you open up kmail and start typing in an email, you're not thinking oh I need to look up my coworker's email address it's just right there. How did it get there? How does how does kmail know that this person whom I've never emailed before at this company? Exists well. The way that Kmail knows is because someone used KLDAP to enable Kmail to search, L- to search through the the directory through the LDAP instance of of that network for the information. Now, sure, there's other there's other search paths as well. Like Kmail may uh, search through your contacts, or it may search through just sort of your frequently emailed um, you know recent contact recent list. So that there are those that's not LDAP, but there is the LDAP component, potentially, if you're if if the place that you are working uses LDAP, then and I keep saying working and and so on, because usually LDAP is is really more of a a company, a corporate thing. You don't I don't think typically set up LDAP at home. Um, You would need a lot of people in that home, I think, to justify that kind of uh, investment. but. And again, investment, I mean, setting it up and configuring it and maintaining it and so on. So I think typically it's at a workplace and typically it is ideally pretty invisible. It doesn't just have to be email addresses. That's just the most obvious thing that I can think of, but there are other uses for it. One of the places I worked used LDAP to, I believe, describe the location of the office of the person that you were looking or the the desk, sorry. The physical location of the desk, because they were in big sort of open spaces, but it would map out like where where the person was was situated within that within that office. It was really cool. I mean, sorry, Ldap didn't do that. They used information from Ldap combined with other information and and generator scripts to 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 map that out. It was very cool. Okay, let's talk about Cleopatra. Now, Cleopatra is a little. This is a little bit tricky in a way because. There's Cleopatra, there's KGPG, and then there's K-Wallet. And they're all kind of within this uh, sort of... Th- they're, they're neighbors, let's say. I, I don't want to say they're the same thing by any means, because they're not. But I think it'll be most efficient to just talk about them individually. So I'm, I'm that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to talk about just Cleopatra because that's what's on the table right now. So Cleopatra is more or less a front end to OpenPGP. GNU PG and a little bit of certificate authority stuff. So uh, that's a big sort of big net to cast, but it does it pretty darn well. Um, generally, Cleopatra gets uh, populated when you when you confirm a a, a digital signature or rather a digital um, a certificate, a key, um, a, a public key from an email, an incoming email. So if you get an email from someone and they've They've signed the email, maybe, and they've included their their um, their their GPG key or their OpenPGP key, PGP key. Then, if you accept that key, uh, then it gets sort of imported into Cleopatra, or, or or it gets acknowledged by Cleopatra. Let's put it that way. Cleopatra includes within its domain, and it it specifically calls its little. Um, its little domain, a key box. And a key box is somewhat akin to a key chain in OpenGPG or OpenPGP. Uh, a key chain is a it's a digital construct. It is a little database that contains your private key, your public key, and then the public keys of other people who you want to correspond with. And you can create that keychain yourself. Uh, usually, you do that with the GNU PG command, GPG2. That's the command name, GPG2. Uh, you, you usually create your keychain with that. And and generally, you don't even create it yourself. You you just create a key for yourself, a private and public key pair. You do that, and then suddenly you have a personal keychain on your system. You can export that keychain and save it, put it onto a thumb drive, lock the thumb drive in a safe. You've got your, your, your identity, your digital sort of identity has now been sort of um, created and not confirmed, but it's been created. The, the claim of identity that you are making has been digitized, in the fact that you've made yourself a key. A private key and a public key pair. Because the public key you can send to other people, and when you encrypt something with your private key, they are able to use your public key to unlock your private key. Your your, your private key encrypted message. That's how that works. It's a brilliant system, so brilliant that the person who invented it almost went to jail for it, <laughs> like literally. Um, so that's, that's GPG, right? That's GPG-2. You can, you can create little keys. And when you do that, your system also acknowledges that you're going to need a keychain to keep to keep other people's public keys organized. And so when you start getting emails from people who are off, also using uh, PGP or GPG, then they may have either attached their public key, or you have searched a key server for a copy of their public key. These are public keys. They're called public keys for a reason. They are meant to be public. So you could search a key server for the public key, and then you can get a copy of it. And when you do that, when you import the public key, it gets imported into your keychain. Okay, so now that's been defined, forget about it, because that's not what Cleopatra uses. Cleopatra technically uses something of its own called that it calls apparently a key box and I, I never knew that you'll never know that it's not something that it makes known really it's just if you if you read the handbook which I did in preparation for this episode um, and I'm glad I did because I mean honestly I was I, I've used Cleopatra I use it you know fairly regularly so I was just gonna say oh this is a thing that you that 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 manages your uh, open GPG or your GNU-PG um, keychain. Like, that's what it always has sort of felt like to me. But technically speaking, it's, it's doing more than that. And I, I guess I kind of knew that, because here I'm looking at things that are completely normal to me. Hey, there's Aaron, there's Adrian, there's Alan, there's Brian, there's Brenton, there's... Dave, there's David, you know, all these names that I'm like, yeah, I know those people. Those are all people whose keys I have. And then there's CA cert, signing authority, DOD, root CA3. (laughs) These aren't people. These aren't even public keys. These are, these are literal certificates. These are, these are SSL certs and things like that. And well, that's kind of the added bonus that you get with Cleopatra. And in fact, uh, in the introduction of the handbook, it says Cleopatra is the KDE tool for managing X, .509 and OpenPGP Certificates in the GPG-SM and GPG-Keyboxes, and for retrieving certificates from LDAP and other certificate servers. Cleopatra can be started from Kmail's Tools Certificate Manager menu, as well as from the uh, terminal, as well as just from the executable, the, the application itself. From from the K menu, or, or however you start your, your applications on your computer. I'll assume the K menu. Okay, so Cleopatra, it opens up. There's a big, big window at the bottom, or there's a big p- panel at the bottom of the window that lists all of the keys that you have in your key box, which includes your open GPG keychain and other things other certificates, other locally stored certificates that you have purview over. So it's not going to have stuff from your slash etc directory. It's just going to have the stuff that you've got locally within your user in your uh, home home directory. Um, The nice thing about Cleopatra. Well, there's so much there's so many nice things about Cleopatra. I don't even know where to begin, to be honest, but I, I guess I have to start somewhere. So how about if I start with what if you don't have a keychain? Let's just say you don't have that yet. You haven't taken that step. Well, you, you could do it from the terminal and you could do like GPG to dash dash help and then read the read the little help menu. This is a very reasonable application. I I, I like the GPG2 interface a lot more than I like the the other GPG, just GPG that command. GPT-2 is nice, but Cleopatra arguably is even nicer. It's, it's, it helps you with, with prompts and, and menus and selections and buttons and things like that. It's the add user to the user add command, except not a command at all. It's a, it's a graphical application. So let's say that you want to create a new key pair for yourself, and this is going to create uh, both a keychain and, I guess, a key box. So when you first launch Cleopatra, if there's nothing else in it, Uh, It just kind of gives you a a greeting screen. Welcome to Cleopatra. Uh, And then there's two buttons, new key pair or import. Both of these are really, really useful because maybe you already have a keychain, and you just need to import it into Cleopatra. Well, there's a, a way to do that, obviously. It makes it very, very simple. But generally speaking, you're, or, are not generally speaking in this case, let's assume that you need to create a new key pair. You could click that button there, or you could go to file new key pair. And then you either way you get to the same place, which is choose what kind of key pair you want to create. And it gives you a choice between open PGP to create a personal open PGP key pair or X.509, which is a certified, by some kind of certificate authority. It needs to be sent to a certificate authority to actually finish being created. Uh, I'm going to assume you don't have that level of um, of authentication in, in your personal life. Uh, you might at at your job, you might at work have that, but for for just personal cons, uh, I'm gonna assume OpenPGP is the way that you wanna go. So create a personal Key. I'm gonna call it 2. Email address. This is kind of important because I mean this is the email address at which or that's going to sort of uh, be associated with this this key. So I mean it can it can be any email address but when people are searching for your public key that's probably one of the ways they're going to identify you uh, by. But this key is not Sort of bound to one email address. You can you can you could you can email and use any email address as long as you have your private key. People are supposed to be able to safely assume that that email truly does come from you. So the email address is important for findability, but it, it's not sort of it, you're not they're not becoming you're not wedding the two together. You're not binding them inextricably. You can always add more email addresses to a key. If you want to help people find that key, you can remove email addresses and so on. Okay, so I'm just gonna put clatu at example.com. And then it asks you whether you want to protect the generated key with a passphrase. And um, that's up to you, I guess. The um, You know, generally I think probably it's a good idea to protect it with a, a passphrase that's kind of what I feel like. Um, the passphrase is not recoverable you cannot you know it's going to be encoded into your your key and that's going to be the passphrase for that key. Um, I haven't done I haven't done a whole lot of reading to find out sort of whether you know what people what the prevailing thoughts are on on the usefulness of of that password honestly um, but I just I feel a little bit better about, protecting it with a password myself uh, because that way I don't know there's just that one more layer between someone clicking send on a message bearing my my openPGp signature or or certificate uh, or or encryption and making sure that that's actually me clicking send there's also a button to see the technical details which lets you choose the Uh, the specification of the key that you're going to create. So the the prevailing key at the time of this recording seems to be ED25519, kind of seems to be the latest algorithm, but if you know better or you have a preference, then you're able to choose that from the technical details menu, or the the setup screen, whatever. Okay, so I'm gonna click OK on that, and now it's asking me to create a passphrase. bogus123, bogus123. This is obviously being done on a virtual machine. I'm not actually setting anything up that I want to keep here. A new OpenPGB certificate was created successfully. Find some suggested next steps. The fingerprint is here, great. Make a backup of your key pair. Send public key by email. Upload to a public um, directory service. Okay, so that's it. Now I have a key box and a key chain. And in Cleopatra, I see that I've now got one entry in my little key box here, and it tells you some information about it. It says that it is valid from 2022 to 2024. Here's the key ID. Here's the name associated with it and the email uh, associated with it and so on. So that's kind of useful, but that's about as useful as an empty key box is going to get. So I'm going to now transfer over to close this um, little virtual machine here and go back up to my real machine so that I can talk about what you can do once you have a key box an active key box so the first uh, and I guess I think personally the the most useful one is the the filter field Um, you can you know if you're looking for someone's key for some reason I mean I I honestly don't know why you would be but you can you can look you you can filter out things and just look at their at their keys so for instance here's here's someone's key i've just filtered it out by name so a aaron there's aaron's key it's not certified it's uh, valid from 2002 and it's valid until forever so as far as i know this hasn't been you know this hasn't expired this hasn't been revoked so it's probably still a valid key what I'm gonna do with that, I don't know. I guess you, I mean, one thing you can do with it is double-click on it to get more information about it. So double-click on that key, and then you get a lot of like, like I said, you like you can add email addresses to a key. And indeed, for this particular key, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten different email addresses associated with this key. So if I get an email from one of these domains, and I think, why is this person emailing me from that address, from example.com? Well, you could go here, look at the key, and and observe that, oh, well, yeah, this does seem to be an acknowledged email address from, from this person. Uh, and then you get certificate details about um, when it expires, what kind of key it is, uh, the fingerprint, and, and so on the capabilities of the key, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, you can do that. You could also sign keys, which is really nice. Um, so when you c- or certify a key, you're telling your internal, your keychain, you're telling your keychain that you trust or do not trust or, or moderately trust or ultimately trust this key. Now, you're really only supposed to do that when you're face-to-face with someone and that, that when they can demonstrate to you that they have control and ownership over the private key, then you mark their the the public key that again, they can demonstrate they have ownership over then then you're supposed to be able to mark it as you know trusted or ultimately trusted or or whatever you feel comfortable with. I mean, that's a sort of a level of of trust. you know what 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 ultimate trust is versus normal trust? I, I don't know like that's up to you. Um, but most people assign it to sort of like you're in person, you see there some kind of officially issued identification, like an ID card, a government ID card, whatever. and then you you, sh- you they they are able to demonstrate that or they don't have to demonstrate but but they are vouching with their identification for a key with the fingerprint of whatever. If that's enough for you, then you can mark it trusted or ultimately trusted or whatever you feel comfortable with. okay. So some keys in my in my list here. And and again, this list is populated by by Kmail for me because I I open something up in Kmail, it tells me, hey, this is this is encrypted or this is signed. And then I choose what I want to do from there. I can either accept it, import the key, you know, decrypt or maybe I maybe I don't have the key, so I have to go find the key from the key database and then import it whatever. I get to choose how how I deal with what I get in, in an email, and once I accept it and, and tell Kmail that yes, that's that's a private key that I want to keep track of, it adds it to my keychain, and then Cleopatra also picks it up from there. So there are some that have expired, officially uh, uh, expired, like someone has set a an expiry date on their key, and between the time that it was valid, I picked it up, but since then, it has expired. So I can select the expired ones or I can use the filter box and there's a little drop-down menu next to the filter box. I can select just, just the expired ones. So now I've got a bunch of red colored red, um, keys here in my list and I can right click on one of them and uh, choose delete. It confirms that I really want to delete that and there it's gone. And I can keep doing that probably honestly, indiscriminately. Like, I can't think of a good reason to keep an expired key, really? So I'm just gonna actually delete all of them right now. There. Done. Thank you, dear listener, for inspiring me to keep my uh, keep my OpenGPG keychain a little bit tidier. There's other stuff too. You can do things like you can sign or encrypt a file that you want to send to a person in this list by selecting their their public key. Oh, here's a revoked one. I could delete that as well. You can select their, their key and then click sign encrypt. And then it asks you to select one or more files to sign and or encrypt. So you can select a file and then it encrypts that file such that the person who owns the other pair of this public key will be able to decrypt it. You can also use their key to decrypt something. So if they've sent you a, a file that has been encrypted by them, and you want to decrypt it, you can use their public key from here to decrypt it. Now, in KMail, that all happens invisibly, or not not invisibly. KMail, at least the way I have it set, it prompts me, it it, it alerts me, "Hey, this has been encrypted. Would you like to decrypt it?" I say yes, and then it decrypts it. So I don't generally use Cleopatra for that. But i could if i needed to like if someone had sent me a a file that maybe i keep on my hard drive encrypted generally but then i decide well i want to look at that one file today so let me decrypt it now so maybe i would go here select the name say decrypt find the file that has been encrypted and let it let it decrypt maybe to my ram disk or something i can also import uh, certificates i can export a certificate like a public key I can what they call certify, which is what I was just saying, you mark it trusted or untrusted. You could look up a new key on a server, uh, so that's that's quite handy as well. Um, and you even have a, a really cool little encrypted notebook. Like you have a little notepad here that you can enter notes into and, and encrypt stuff or decrypt stuff with, with, with either your key or the keys to whom you want that note to go to and so on it's it's a very very cool application and it's one of those that i feel like once you start using gpg or OpenPGP or whatever i feel like cleopatra becomes well really just a saving grace honestly because the gpg terminal command uh, just honestly it's it's not it's not that it's not good it's that you don't use it often enough to get good at it now that might be different for you for whatever reason maybe you're always using the gpg2 command or, or some set of gpg tooling for, for me though it's 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 really something i use very very infrequently and so you know like most of my interactions with with gpg are either for my own locally encrypted files or for emailed files that people send to me that i then decrypt with kmail practically invisibly, and then I, I don't think about, you know, I, I don't really have to interact that much with with GPG directly. And so when I have to use the GPG2 command, it is always slow going for me, because I, I just never use it directly. I have a whole directory structure of encrypted files, because I use the uh, pass command, which is a uh, little uh, command, uh, it's called password store, and it is a command to uh, you to to save passwords for your browser, whether it's Firefox or Chromium or Chrome or whatever you use, there's probably a plugin for it called Password Store, and you can just use locally encrypted GPG files to store your your passwords, your uh, your username and your password. So it's really a really a useful thing. But again, that's not something that I actually interact with directly. I use it through a browser, which calls the OpenGPG, GNU-PG, whatever it's called, stuff in the background, and so I'm not actually doing that. So local files, I have like probably literally hundreds of locally encrypted GPG stuff, but I don't interact with it directly. I've got cleopatra that i can use to look at my keychain so i don't have to fiddle with gpg2 it's just it is a really really nice application and i think that it single-handedly makes gnu pg open pgp i think it makes it so much more approachable honest that's my feeling so if you have been resisting the the pull towards encrypted communications. Check out Cleopatra, honest. You should check it out. It is easy to get started. You just create one new key pair for yourself and then you've got everything you need. You've got your key pair, you've got your key chain, and Kmail makes it really easy to encrypt or just digitally sign stuff. The, the difference there being digitally signed just says, "Yes, this was by the, this is sent from this person." Look, here's a copy of their of their, uh, of, of their key information. Whereas encrypting jumbles all the information, and it cannot be unjumbled uh, unless that person has a copy of your public key. How do they get your public key? Well, you follow Cleopatra's advice, and you upload your key, your public key, to a key server. And Cleopatra can help you with that as well. So it is just, it is, it is the it is the application honestly it is the application that makes GPG really usable and it's not that complex like it 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 I'm not saying it makes anything perfect uh, I I don't mean that because I I'm not convinced that this that any of this as is as simple as it needs to be and I believe that if it was as simple as it needed to be then it would be widely adopted because It would just be a thing that we all did. We wouldn't even have to think about it. So there's still something, there's a gap that needs to be bridged. I don't think Cleopatra is the bridge. I don't think OpenGPG is the bridge. I don't think, what was it, Keybase, I don't think that was the bridge. There's still some component missing here, because we're not all using it right now. But if you want to start using it, start with Cleopatra. That's my advice to you. It's a great application, if I haven't made that clear. Cleopatra, very cool. Try it out. Let's go get coffee. As I sit here sipping my fresh cup of coffee, I have to admit I've been playing Clickety. Now that's conveniently the next application on the list, so it's it's convenient that I am playing it. But before I I talk about it, I wanna I wanna mention a book by a former listener. <laughs> um, so this uh, this very nice individual V Subhash has emailed me and and told me that they used to listen to my podcast kind of fell off for a while which is fine by the way Uh, i think podcasts are a little bit like well honestly like people at least people like i think this is how people view the world i i think there's an aspect to relationships where you meet someone they're perfect in your life at a certain time and then you kind of drift apart because of of reasons you you have different jobs you you go in different directions physical directions whatever that's just you know you you kind of you you come together for a little while then you part ways and it's nice that's how podcasts are sometimes you know you start listening to something it's like your best companion on the way to work every day and then you get a different job different different route to work, different habits, and you never think about that podcast again. I think there's beauty to that. So it's okay that Vsupash has stopped uh, listening to my podcast. That's perfectly fine. Nevertheless, though, interestingly, Vsupash thought to email me when uh, they recently published a book called FFmpeg Quick Hacks on A-Press. No, I'm sorry. It's called Quick Start Guide to FFmpeg on A-Press it is a rewritten version of a of a book that i think v subhash had self-published ffmpeg quick hacks so it's called uh, on a press is called quick start guide to ffmpeg so hunt that book down because it's got a lot of cool uh, information in it about ffmpeg like verifiably cool and you know ffmpeg can be tricky it really can be i mean you can do amazing things with it but Sometimes those command, I mean, a command can sometimes feel and almost act like a whole script. It's just one command, so it can be it can be tricky. And I think the more that you, I mean, certainly if you if you're curious about using ffmpeg, I think the more sort of quick hacks or getting started guides that you read, the better, because there's just so much in it, and you really kind of have to learn. I don't even know if it's about learning half the time. It's it, sometimes it's just show me how to do the thing and and this book is is loaded with cool tricks so check that out it's on a press it is called quick start guide to ffmpeg by v subhash and i'm sorry v subhash if you do listen now i'm sorry if i mispronounced your name but that was that was a really cool moment to hear back from a listener who'd who'd gone away but and nevertheless thought to contact me later to say sort of like thank you Uh, in fact v Subhash says I should also say that I was inspired by you, you in this context being class who, uh you to change fully to Linux and to try to do everything with open source. I write, illustrate, design, format, and build all my books, PDF and ebook, using only free and open source software. That's really, really cool. Okay, so let's see what's what's Clickity all about. Clickety is like that other game. Um, I don't remember what the game was called. But it it was I, I've covered it already. It was like k K bejeweled or something like that, or K K crystal orbs or something like that. It was, it was some game where you click um, rows of color of colored dots and they disappear. So it's kind of like Tetris in reverse. And this is similar to that, but there's a slightly there's something different to it. And the goal the, 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 the of that you want to reduce your board, your playing board, to I guess nothing. And you do that by clicking sort of conglomerates of, of similarly colored regions. And the, the thing is, the trick about it is that regions can merge when you click away something. So for instance, let's say I've got a region, a yellow region and the yellow region are separated by a uh, couple of blobs of green. Well, now, if I click that green region, it disappears, and every... you know, all the stuff on top of it falls down a level, thereby causing the two yellow regions that was formerly separated by the green to merge. So now I can click this new single yellow region and get rid of that. Well, now that's caused a blue region that was formerly two separate regions to merge. I could click that blue region, but uh, there's a, there's some blue below it still. So I could maybe instead merge those, merge that, and then maybe merge that even more, and then click the blue region away. Or maybe that wasn't the right move. Maybe I should have ignored the blue region and clicked something else to merge something something greater. Um, you cannot click single sort of blobs, like a single block, you cannot click that. It has to be, I think, two, yeah. Two or greater. And again, the more you the, the more you merge together, the better chance you have of of getting rid of more um, sort of floor space in, in your in your little playing board. It's trickier than it seems, but it's also um, you know, it's 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 got that sort of mobile game feel to it. So It's not what I would think of as like a super stressful game. It's like, it's one of those where you just get to click and idly sort of click things away and change the board a little bit. And then at some point you run out of things to remove at some point, you've taken away everything that you can, you get scored and that game is over. And that's how I did pretty good. I only had 13 pieces left, apparently, out of 160. Now I'm playing on easy mode. There are several different modes that you can play on, from very easy, to easy, to medium, to hard, to custom. Custom being whatever you want it to be, uh, as defined in the uh, Configure Clickety menu. So if you go to, uh, what is it, Settings, Configure Clickety, then under Custom Game you can define how many what the width of your game board is, the height of your game board and the color count, the different kinds of color that you have. There's also of course different different themes. Um kind of disappointingly there's not an Egyptian theme. It's too bad. Uh and there are sounds and keyboard shortcuts and anything else. No, that's pretty much it. I mean, it's a really simple game. It's like it's 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 a mobile game essentially except it's on your computer and You just click, you click, you click, you click, and I think there's an addiction. There's an addicting quality to that. You know, that's just kind of weirdly soothing sometimes. To just you're just removing colored pieces from this board, and you're just seeing how much you can get rid of. And of course, the game keeps the the state of the board keeps changing. So you know, you kind of feel like you're leveling up sometimes, just because you're just because you've collapsed some things together that weren't that weren't contiguous before. I think there's a game design lesson to be learned there too, you know, like that amount of board state change is really really satisfying whereas in the in the game from last time uh which was called K jumping cube where you had these these dice an array of dice and you you kept flipping the dice over and the the more you flipped the dice the more you know, it sort of like spread points around it, but the thing that I was noticing on that game was that it was kind of disheartening when you thought, okay, 80% of the board belongs to my opponent, I've lost, let's just get this over with so we can start a new game, but instead it keeps drawing it out because then you regain another 20% and then they regain 40, you know, and it just keeps going back and forth, and back and forth, and it gets... I guess if he had regained 40 points, that would... or 40%, that would have been... because 80 minus 20, then 60 plus 40, yeah, okay. Well, anyway, point is, that was not satisfying to me, anyway. Uh, Whereas this one, where it's, it's the board keeps changing, sometimes in a satisfying way, sometimes, oh, I could have optimized that differently, or whatever, but it keeps you really kind of intrigued and kind of wanting more which is it's just an interesting difference between between that maybe I a mean, part of the part of the thing might be that there is no opponent here it it's a game that you're just playing against the clock against the the gravity of the cubes that's it whereas with k jumping cube you're yeah you are you're fighting for victory so maybe there's a difference there but um that was a that, I like Clickety a lot uh, that is a game that I could have seen. I, I could see, like, something like that for, like, an open, like, a game jam, or something like that. I, I feel like that's a, that's an attainable kind of game. And they're great, you know, because, like, that, that's the, like, I keep saying, that that's a mobile game to me. That's what I think of when I think of a mobile game, a classic mobile game, is just like, you know, you got your phone just kind of in one hand, and you're on the bus or whatever, and you're just clicking the screen clicking the screen, whiling away the time. Is it as productive as, I don't know, like a crossword or Sudoku or something like that? Probably not, but it, it certainly does satisfy the passage of time. And in certain situations, that's just what you want. Something really simple, but kind of tactile in a way and satisfying. So clickity, check it out, it's fun. Speaking of mobile games and of games that I could see trying to re-implement or implement in a game jam, The next one in the list is called K-Lines, or as it calls itself, Color Lines. I was not able to find a handbook for this. I went to Help. I went to Color Lines Handbook. Nothing came up, so I looked it up online, and luckily there are instructions online on how this game is supposed to work. It is a really, really fun game. I, I, I didn't like it at first at all because I couldn't figure it out, but once I researched a little bit, I realized what I was doing wrong. And, and discovered that it's it's a really, really fun game. So, by default, the Egyptian theme came up. And I love the Egyptian theme normally, but for this particular game, I found uh, gems, or crystal, or metal to be much, much more useful. I thought the gems was was perfectly fine. Um, so it's it's a... picture a chessboard, and Uh, At the beginning, at the start of the, the game, you have maybe two gems on it. And you're supposed to move those gems in some position. Oh, three gems I have. So I've got two green gems and a purple gem. Well, I can't do anything with a single gem, so I'm gonna take the green and line it up with the other green one. Now, unfortunately, once you take a move, once you move a gem, and you can move it as far as you want across the board, it doesn't matter how many spaces, And that's a very satisfying feeling. Unfortunately, after you take an action, um, more gems are placed onto your board, apparently at random. I can't find the pattern. I think it's just randomly. So, now you've got more gems on your board. Alright, no problem. I can try to organize those a little bit. So I've got two yellow gems that have just appeared, so I'll put those next to each other. And then, of course, more gems get dumped onto my board. So, I've got another yellow gem, so I can just line that up with my yellow gems. I've got a green gem, But, the green gems that I had put together are no longer accessible. The top and the bottom of that row has been blocked off by a blue gem and a red gem that I can't really do a whole lot with. Well, actually, the blue gem I could move over here. So, in other words, I'm moving these gemstones around this board pretty much, sort of, like, almost arbitrarily. But the goal is to get them into rows of five. And when you achieve a row of five, it disappears. That whole row disappears, freeing up game game board space, which is really important, as you'll come to find out, because that game board just keeps filling up no matter what you do, and it's annoying because sometimes a thing that you're working on that you're building uh, fills up, and now you you can't you know you can't make that row disappear or or whatever. Uh so yeah it's it's a lot of fun and and it gets tricky after a while because your gems can only move through through contiguous spaces. So if the computer can find a path from the square that you want to from the square that your gem is to where you want that gem to be, then you can make that move. But if the computer can't find a valid path from here to there, then you can't get there. Um, you cannot move diagonally. You can move uh, vertically and horizontally, which of course can sort of mimic a diagonal movement, but it's not true diagonal because um, because once like if if you are blocked off on the on on both sides and you you see a clear path just diagonally, you won't be able to get there, even though even though you feel like you should be able to get there you, you won't be able to because it's a diagonal move and that board can get so full and and then you'll see something and you'll think oh I can I can clear that row and and suddenly the board isn't quite as full as it was um and boy is that satisfying but but those gems they just keep appearing <laughs> it's it's the worst it's the most pesky thing they just keep appearing in, on your board and eventually you run out of space and once your board is full then or or i guess once there are no more no yeah once it's full then the game over is over so again it's kind of like the reverse of 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 no it's kind of like tetris except without any structure to it because they just keep getting the, the gems keep getting dumped onto your board without really any predictability which is just the most annoying thing cuz you'll like i say you'll you'll be building a row and you'll think you're doing great And then something will happen and fill up that, you know, and block off that row or, or, or something like that. And it gets, it's just so disheartening, but yeah, it's a, it's a fun little game and you can really, really, you know, like you can just, you can just almost see the code of the Pathfinder in the game. You know, you just think you can just almost, you can almost see it. You might not know how to write it, but you know, it was written, you know, that it's, it's clever, uh, and and it makes you really just want to to rewrite it yourself, because it's uh, really well done. So that is Color Lines, again, probably a really, really great mobile game, like it's sh- surely something that um, is on... It, it must be on a phone platform already. Definitely that would be a contender for a converged application from KDE, that should definitely be on, on all the mobile phones. Oh my gosh, I have to stop playing these games! They're really fun! And that's, I think that's... That's evident in the fact that you just can't, you kinda can't... Oh, there's the handbook! It did pop up, but it was on a different desktop, and it didn't bring it to the front. Well, that would have been useful several minutes ago. Finally, last but not least, is KMAG. This is an accessibility application, really. And what it does, it's a little bit tricky when you first launch it because you you don't exactly maybe understand what's going on but it it puts a little viewport in the middle of your screen or at least that's where it appears for me and it's tracking your mouse cursor but confusingly it also shows your mouse cursor in the magnifying uh, window so it it almost looks like it has grabbed hold of your mouse and stuck it to the middle of the of this window but actually that's just that's a copy of your mouse and your actual mouse is traveling around the screen as 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 usual, but you're seeing the the portion of the screen that you're you're dragging your mouse across in this window at some magnification level. By default, it seems to be uh, sort of doubling it, but you could you can make it even even bigger 1 to 3 1 to 4 1 to 5 1 to 6 all the way up to 1 to 20 so you can get down to like just the a very 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 precise pixel level like where you can see the pixels like it's it's very very it can be very magnified if you want it to be and you can make this window quite large so you could have for instance i don't know you could have like half your screen be magnified and then the other half be be not magnified something like that or you could put this on a separate monitor maybe could do that so uh, this seems really useful to me for I mean for a very practical purpose of well my vision isn't as good as it needs to be to see you know the the size of this interface let me blow it up in K mag to get a closer look or it could be just something for for a, a more just uh, i'm not a, I, I was i was gonna say a more practical use case but that's that is practical it's very practical <laughs> to to magnify something that you can't see that's like the epitome of practicality That's very good um no but i meant just like f- just for because you need a closer look at something you know which i guess is actually saying the same thing you can't see something on your screen for whatever reason you want to magnify it kmag is the tool you can use to do that now for me Personally, I have that same feature activated in System Settings, somewhere in System Settings, uh, in, I think, uh, Desktop, yeah, Workspace Behavior, Desktop Effects, there is a magnifier fun- no, a zoom function, sorry, zoom function, which allows you to assign a keyboard shortcut to magnifying or demagnifying your screen. And I have it set up to F8 to zoom in, and F7 to zoom out. And that works really well for me. The The thing is, though, that, that that's zooming in, you know, your whole screen. So then your whole screen becomes the magnification portal, and you can zoom back out with F7. So F8, F7. I mean, that's that's arbitrary. That's just what I do for for myself. Um, and it's actually not for myself. It's, it's because I do screen shares sometimes. And I want people to be able to see a certain detail of an, of an application that I am demo, that I'm demonstrating or training them on. Uh, So that's why that's there. So, and it always, it always amazes people when I'm able to do that. Like, I don't know why that's such a a big deal to people, but I'll zoom into something and they'll just. They won't believe that that's possible. They won't understand how that they, they assume I'm using some kind of fancy screen capturing software and I have to always tell them, well, not always, not everyone cares, but when they ask, I tell them, nope, that's just my desktop. It's just something that Linux does for free. You just, it just does, it just does that if you turn that feature on. So it's a, it's a cool feature. Kmag or system settings make things bigger. If you need it bigger, honestly, if your eyes, Are straining to see something do not suffer through it just make it bigger it's 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 so easy on Linux to do and it's so nice it is just so nice it's such a nice feature those are the kind of features that make me really optimistic for technology you know that that kind of feature that kind of accessibility feature because it's one of those things where some people absolutely need that some people's vision just if the technology isn't built for their vision and and that is a shame but if we can activate things like magnification and make it really easy to get to then that could change the computing experience for people and i've seen it happen i've seen it in real life i know people several people who use screen magnification as a matter of course like that is the primary way they interface with their computer and it makes me Really, really annoyed actually when when that's a feature that gets hidden away. Because it's 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 kind of like saying, you know, I mean it's it's like, hey, person in a wheelchair, we have a wheelchair ramp right there at the top of the stairs. You just have to get up the chair the the stairs to get to the wheelchair. You know, it's like, why are we putting accessibility features why are we hiding them behind things that people might not be able to access the the accessibility features to my mind should be on by default and then you de- you deactivate them if you have the ability to easily deactivate them it only makes sense i mean i i will look i will totally admit that if all the accessibility features were turned on a, on a desktop by default, yes, I can see how that could be problematic, but I wonder if there's an easier entryway into those accessibility features that would be uh, be better than, for instance, knowing to go to System Settings, going to Workspace Behavior, going into Desktop Effects, going to Zoom, and then clicking on the Configuration button so that you can figure out what the buttons to to Zoom are. And then you've got two, four, six, eight, nine different options of all the different ways that you could zoom. I mean, it, it gets really, it gets complex. And I, I just wonder if there's a, a better way for us to make sure that people who, who can't see the screen, could they get to that feature? You know, like, how can you turn on the magnifying glass if you can't see the screen? You can't, if you can't see the the, the words, on the screen that say turn on the magnifying feature like that that doesn't make sense to me so there's once again there's a there's a gap that needs to be bridged here but but kmag and 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 zooming in with kwin those are two great great features i think they're super important i think they're they're features that we should be proud of as open source enthusiasts. We should promote them. We should talk about them. They should not be hidden features. And we should have more of that. Accessibility is just so important, especially in open source. Why? Because open source is supposed to be for everybody. That's, that's the ethos. So let's build that into the software. Okay. That's KMAG, congratulations to the uh, developers who developed that, thank you so much for that feature, thank you for the KWIN features that enable accessibility for everyone, and thank you, dear listener, for listening to the show. I will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. My name's Clatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is Clatu at SlackerMedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not Clatu at Mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music. Look and see how the infra scanner's working.